Section 26 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 7, Part 4. King William had gained a great point in being recognized as King of England by the King of France, but that was not enough. He was piqued at the asylum that was afforded by that monarch to the deposed king and queen at Saint-Germain. They were too near England to please him. He had labored, at the peace of Ryswick, to obtain their expulsion from France, or at least to distance them from the court. Louis was inflexible on that point. The Duke of St. Albans, the son of Charles II, by Nell Gwynne, was sent to make a fresh demand, when he presented the congratulations of William on the marriage of the Duke of Burgundy, but it was negatived. St. Albans was followed by William's favorite, Portland, attended by a numerous suite. At the first conference he had with the minister, Torcy, he renewed his demand that James and his family should be chased from their present abode. Torcy replied, that his majesty's pleasure had been very fully expressed at Ryswick, that it was his wish to maintain his present amicable understanding with King William, but that another word on the subject of Saint-Germain would disturb it. Portland was treated with all sorts of distinctions by the princes of the blood, and was invited to hunt with the Dauphin several times at Menden. One day, when he had come for that purpose, word was brought to the Dauphin that it was the intention of King James to join in the chase, on which he requested Portland to defer his sport till a future occasion. Portland quitted the forest with some vexation, and returned to Paris with his suite, Portland was a great hunter, and he was surprised that he received no more attention from the Duc de Rochefoucault than common civility warranted. He told him he was desirous of hunting with the king's dogs. Rochefoucault replied dryly, that although he had the honor of being the grand huntsman, he had no power to direct the hunts, as it was the king of England, that is James, of whom he took his orders, that he came very often, and as he never knew till the moment where he would order the rendezvous, he must go to attend his pleasure with great reverence, and left Portland, who was much displeased. What he replied was out of pure regard for James, who at that time was not well enough to hunt, but he wished to show Portland that he was not one of the time-served nobles, whom he had been able to attach to his chariot wheels. Portland resolved to depart, and before he left Paris, hinted that the dower, which by one of the articles of the Peace of Ryswick, had been secured to Mary Beatrice, would never be paid as long as King James persisted in remaining at Saint-Germain. It is well known that it never was, this being one of the pretenses on which it was withheld. In order to give his ambassador, Bentick, more influence with the vainglorious Louis the Fourteenth, it is said that eighty thousand pounds was expended by him, Prior, the poet, was secretary to the embassy. He saw the unfortunate James in his exile, a few months before his troublous career was brought to a close, and in these words he describes the royal exiles to his master, Halifax. The court is gone to see their monarch, Louis the Fourteenth, a cockhorse at Compiègne. I follow as soon as my English nags arrive. I faced old James and all his court the other day at St. Cloud. Vive Guillaume! You never saw such a strange fellow, as the old bully is, that is James the Second, Lean, worn, and rivelled, not like Neil the projector, the queen, that is Mary of Modena. 
looks very melancholy, but otherwise well enough. Their equipages are all very ragged and contemptible. I have written to my Lord Portland the sum of several discourses I have had with Monsieur de la Zune, or rather they with me, about the pension which we were to allow the Queen. Do we intend, my dear master, to give her fifty thousand pounds per annum or not? If we do not, I, or rather my Lord Jersey, should now be furnished with some chicaning answers when we are pressed on that point, for it was fairly promised, that is certain. Prior, however brutally he expresses himself, was right as to fact, and Parliament had actually granted the dower, and supposed it was paid. But, as the Duchess of Marlborough truly observes, it never found its way further than the pockets of William the Third. In one of her letters without date, the poor queen says, I have been sick a whole month, and it is only within the last four or five days that I can call myself convalescent. Even within the last two days, I have had inflammation in my cheek and one side of my throat, which has incommoded me. But that is nothing in comparison to the other illness I have suffered, which has pulled me down and rendered me so languid that I am good for nothing. In this state, it has pleased God to allow me to remain all the time I have been at Fontainebleau. It is by that I have proven doubly the goodness and the patience of the king, which has exceeded everything one could imagine. I have also been overwhelmed with kindness by every one. Monsieur and Madame have surpassed themselves in the extreme friendship they have shown for me, which I can never forget while I live. Madame de Maintenon has done wonders with regard to me, but that is nothing new with her. After all, my dear mother, I agree with you, and I am convinced in the bottom of my heart, and never more so than at the present moment, that all is but vanity. I dare not allow myself to go on writing to you without reserve, but I will tell you everything when I have the pleasure of conversing with you, which will be next Tuesday, I hope. In another of her letters to her Chalot correspondent, Mary Beatrice says, A very honest man died yesterday, who had been Secretary of War for Ireland. The king, my husband, loved him very much, and he is a great loss to him. He died in the chateau, very Christianly, and as a good Catholic ought. I request a de profundis from all our sisters, for the repose of his soul. I send you the English news, which we have received by the usual way you will see that the Parliament makes itself entirely the ruling party there. We are all in good health, God be thanked. One day, the Princess of Conti said to the exiled Queen, The English don't know what they would be at. One party is for a republic, another for a monarchy. To which Her Majesty made this acute rejoinder. They have had a convincing proof of the fallacy of a republic, and they are now trying to establish it under the name of a monarchy. Some little facts connected with the domestic history and private feelings of the royal exiles at Saint-Germain are generally to be gathered from the unaffected letters of Mary Beatrice to her spiritual friend and confidant, Madame Priolo, in one of these, which is merely dated at Saint-Germain this Saturday morning. She says, the king had a little fever eight days ago, but nothing came of it, only that it prevented him from hunting and going to Marley. We were there the day before yesterday, till an hour after midnight, to see the young and old dance. 
I take very little pleasure in that sort of thing, and even when it is over, I feel very much fatigued. So much for the joyless gaiety of formal court balls, which to the fallen king and queen of England, who, as a matter of state etiquette, were compelled to perform at least the part of complacent spectators in such scenes, while their hearts were oppressed with unutterable cares and sorrows, must have been worse than vanity and vexation of spirit. Her majesty, with the fond simplicity of maternal love, which makes mothers in humbler life fancy that every little incident or change that affects their offspring, must be no less interesting to their friends than to themselves, goes on to communicate the following details relating to her children. My son has had two great teeth torn out within the last twelve days. They were very fast, and he bore it with great resolution. They had caused him much pain, and prevented him from sleeping. My daughter's nose is still a little black from her fall. In other respects, they are both well. Here is an exact account of the health of all who are dear to me. The royal matron, whom nature, when forming her heart so entirely, for the instincts of maternal and conjugal love, never intended for a politician, now proceeds as a matter of minor moment, to speak of public affairs, and thus mentions the severe mortification that had recently been inflicted on their great adversary, William the Third, in the dismissal of his Dutch guards. In regard to business, the Parliament of England have not had much complacence from Monsieur le Prince d'Orange, for they have deprived him of his army, and he has himself consented to it, and passed the bill, seeing plainly that he had no other resource. Mary Beatrice passes briefly over the affair of the Dutch guards, as a mere matter of personal mortification, to the supplanter of her lord in the regal office, not perceiving the importance of the political crisis that had been involved in the question of whether the Dutch sovereign of England were to be permitted to overawe a free people by a foreign standing army paid with their gold. The fates of Stuart and Nassau were then poised in a balance, which William's refusal to acquiesce in the unwelcome fiat of those who had placed the regal garland on his brow would have turned in favor of the former. William, however, possessed a wisdom in which his luckless uncle was deficient, the wisdom of this world. He knew how to read the signs of the times. He felt the necessity of schooling his sullen temper into a reluctant submission, and kept his diadem. The following interesting letter from Mary Beatrice to the abbess of Chalot, though without any date of the year, appears to have been written some time after the peace of Ryswick. Fontainebleau, 25th of September I received your last letter, my dearest mother, just as we were starting from Saint-Germain, and could only read your letter in the coach, where I, too, read that from Sister Angelique, which you had had copied in such fair and good writing, that it was really wonderful. The king and all my ladies were charmed with it, for I read the whole of it aloud. We put your basket of fruit into the coach, and found the contents so excellent, that we eat of them several times in the course of that day. Your own letter is admirable. Nothing can be more beautiful than your reflections on the cross. That cross follows me everywhere, and I have found it even here, having been ill for three or four days. My indisposition commences with an ordinary colic, and ended in a nephritique, occasioned, Monsieur Fagon thinks, by the violent exercise of hunting, after having remained for a long time inactive, 
but god be thanked it is all over and i have been twice to the chase since without suffering any inconvenience the abbess of chalot's fine basket of fruit which the royal party had such pleasure in discussing during their journey to fontainebleau had probably more to do with her majesty's colic than the fatigues of the chase which she only followed in her coach as she expressly notices in another letter the devotion of mary beatrice to this unfeminine amusement was not among the most amiable of her propensities it was a passion with james and almost the last pleasure in which he permitted himself to indulge we are treated here by the king and all his court as in other years continues mary beatrice and having said that i can say no more for you know in what manner i have always described it with the permission of the king we have named thursday for the day of our departure and to-morrow we go to maloon i shall not go to lease you can divine the reason it is two days since i commenced this letter and i cannot finish it to-day that is the twenty-seventh i was yesterday at maloon and was very much pleased with our sisters there and above all with their mother they are very good daughters they were charmed with the king my husband whom i brought to see them i am now about to write two words to our mother on the subject of the little strickland who is perhaps dead at this time mr arthur has sent word to her mother that she was very ill and it is several days since she had had any tidings of her adieu my ever dear mother i embrace you with all my heart at the foot of the cross it is there where you will always find me i will send you my news from st germain on friday or saturday next if it pleases god who alone knows what may happen between this and then alas poor monsieur de pompon who was so well on tuesday last died yesterday evening there is nothing more to tell you at present for in this place they talk of nothing but the chase endorsed second letter of the queen during the extremity of our little sister strickland this young lady in whom the queen took almost a maternal interest was the daughter of one of her faithful servants who had forsaken everything to follow her adverse fortunes la petite strickland as mary beatrice familiarly calls her had by the liveliness of her disposition caused some anxiety to her parents and the nuns though it appears from a subsequent letter of the queen that she died in what was considered an odor of sanctity having received the white veil of a probationer from the hand of her royal mistress in honor of which all the ladies who destined themselves for a religious life in that convent were ambitious in the november of sixteen ninety nine mary beatrice was alarmed during one of her annual retreats to chalot by a rumor that the king her husband was seriously indisposed without tarrying for the ceremonies of a formal leave-taking of the community she hastened back on the wings of love and fear to st germain and found his majesty in great need of her conjugal care and tenderness she gives the following simple and unaffected account of his sufferings and her own distress in a confidential letter to the abbess of chalot dated the twenty eighth of november although i quitted you so hastily the other day my dear mother i do not repent of it for the king was too ill for me to have been absent from him he was surprised and very glad to see me arrive he has had very bad nights and suffered much for three or four days but god be thanked he is getting better and has had less fever for some days and yesterday it was very slight 
I am astonished that it was not worse, for the disease has been very bad. Felix, that is one of Louis the Fourteenth's surgeons, says that it is of the same nature with that which the king, his master, had in the neck about two years ago. It supernated three days ago, but the boil is not yet gone. Thus we see that King James's malady was not only painful, but loathsome. Even the same affliction that was laid on Job, sore boils breaking out upon him. Yet his faithful consort, five and twenty years his junior, and still one of the most beautiful women in Europe, attended on him day and night, and unrestrained by the cold ceremonial etiquettes of royalty, performed for him all the personal duties of a nurse, with the same tenderness and self-devotion, with which the patient heroine of domestic life occasionally smooths the pillow of sickness and poverty in a cottage. It is only for the last two nights, continues the queen, that I have slept apart from the king on a little pallet bed in his chamber. I experienced some ill consequences myself before I would consent to this separation, and you may believe, my dear mother, that I have not suffered a little in seeing the king suffer so much. I hope, however, that it will do him great good, and procure for him a long term of health. I attribute his recovery principally to the prayers at Chalot, and I thank our dear mother and sisters with all my heart, and request a continuation of them. My own health is good. God has not sent all sorts of afflictions at once. He knows my weakness, and he has disposed for me accordingly. It is his signal grace that the malady of the king has come to so rapid a conclusion, and without any relapse. Thank him, my dear mother, for me, and pray that I may be rendered sufficiently thankful for this mercy, and for all that has been done for me, mortificat et vivificat, for he can never be sufficiently praised by you and me. I am yours, my dear mother, with all my heart. I recommend my son to your prayers. He will make his first communion at Christmas, if it please God. The latter part of this letter is illegibly written, and in broken French, with a confusion of pronouns which renders it difficult to translate. It bears evident traces of the restless nights and anxious days which the royal writer had spent in the sick chamber of her unfortunate consort, and the reader must remember that it was not the native language of the Modenese princess. In another of her letters, Mary Beatrice speaks in a more cheerful strain of her husband's health. The king, thank God, is better. He is not quite free of the gout yet. That is but a trifle. His other complaint is quite cured, but the doctor would not permit him to go to Marley yesterday, as he had hoped, because it was too far to go in the coach for the first time. He has been out for the first time today to take the air, without the least inconvenience, so that we hope he may be able to accomplish the journey to Marley. She hastily concludes her letter with these words. Adieu, my ever-dear mother, I must finish, for the king calls me to come to supper. The king did not rally so fast as was anticipated by his faithful consort. The season of the year was against him, and he had more than one relapse. Mary Beatrice was herself very far from well at this time, but all thoughts of her own sufferings were, as usual, swallowed up in her anxiety for her husband. I have been for a long time indisposed, writes she to Angelique Priolo. But my greatest pain has been the serious illness of the king. But God be thanked, he has been without fever for the last two days, and is now convalescent, as I am also, 
although we have not as yet attended mass except in the chamber on account of that great cold which still confines us here and deprives me of the hope of seeing you before the twenty-second of the month when i hope to spend two or three days at chalot if there be no change but in this world there is not anything that we can reckon upon as sure in the same letter she requests her friend to ask the abbess of chalot to forward the bills of expenses for her own chamber and for the young scotch novice her protege whom she always designates as la petite sur de dombarton for whose board in the convent of chalot she had made herself responsible she also names the chamber of the ladies-in-waiting who were accustomed to attend on her during her occasional retreats to the convent of chalot some expenses having been incurred for their accommodation adieu she says my ever dear mother sorsum corda adieu let us in all times and in all places employ time for eternity amen End of section twenty six